As taxpayers and concerned global citizens, we all want foreign aid to be well spent. Aid agencies try to secure this by measuring results, checking that aid is achieving its intended objectives. But what if that process of managing for results actually undermines aid effectiveness? To investigate this possibility, Dr. Dan Honig, a former aid worker, advisor to the Liberian Ministry of Finance, and now assistant professor at John Hopkins, has undertaken the most phenomenally impressive quantitative and qualitative research. So, Dan, welcome. Tell us all about your gigantic data set, 14,000 unique projects in 178 recipient environments. <laughs> thank you, Alice. Uh, and thank you. It's really a pleasure to be here uh, and uh, to, be on, to be on four questions. Um, so, <clears throat> yeah, so basically what I did is I uh, set out to collect as much data I could on the results of as many projects as I could find. And so, you know, I used my connections from my time as an aid worker and, you know, my ability to sort of, you know, make freedom of information requests and these kinds of things uh, to ask essentially every agency I could think of uh, for whatever project results data they had. Um, and, you know, I found that when I set out at the outset, uh, I sort of thought that that would keep me from being able to do the project, mm -hmm. that I wouldn't get enough data to mm -hmm. be able to say anything coherent about the difference in organizational practice for which I needed lots of organizations' data. Um, but, you know, I sort of... Um, you know, worked at data collection for a while and uh, ended up being able to get data from nine agencies uh, on the kind of holistic results of their projects. So that is measures that looked at the end of a project at how well the project had done whatever the agency wanted it to do. So, mm -hmm. you know, the question isn't, you know, what do I or you think that this aid project should have done, yeah. but what did the people who designed it, you know, the people who put it in motion, want to have happen in this project? Mm. Uh, and uh, these agencies, these nine agencies and these 14,000 projects have gone back and said, how good a job did we do? Uh, and what I wanted to understand is, uh, of course, there's a lot of variation, a lot of noise uh, in these data and in what goes into a rating. Uh, but after we took out the econometric noise, after we controlled for as many things as we could, uh, after we controlled for recipient country environments and all that, uh, what could we say systematically about what led to better, relatively better, and relatively less good projects? Um, and so what do you find? Right? So what do I find? I find that uh, organizations that empower their agents in the field more, those that navigate by judgment in my language, uh, do a better job of coping with uh, more unpredictable environments and working when the task is kind of harder to manage using using measures. So, How do you find that out from the quantitative data? So uh, what I find is that the uh, is that where where organizations empower their field agents more, they see less of a difference in performance as environmental unpredictability changes. So as we go either from a relatively predictable country to a relatively unpredictable country, they see less of a difference in their performance. Uh, and as we go from more to less unpredictability or vice versa uh, within the same country as, you know, as Guinea or the Gambia rises or falls in straight state fragility, we see... Uh, differences in, we see less of a difference in the performance of an agency that more radically empowers its field staff than, than one that does not. They are more likely to see more consistent performance as context changes, right? So because of the nature of the data, because every donor 
uses a slightly different rating scale. What I can't tell you is that directly donor A does better than donor B. What I can tell you is that donor A is more consistent than right. donor B. That's what the quantitative data can tell us. Um, and of course, uh, it also can tell us that, you know, so the way I would put it is, what we learn from this is that if an agency that more radically empowers its field agents is a, I don't know, a Jeep, a 4x4, a Land Rover, yeah. right here in the UK. So is a Land Rover and an agency that retains more central control uh, maybe is a Corvette. Yeah. And when we have a sort of flat, smooth road, uh, the Corvette may well do better. But when we hit a rocky road or when we go off-road, mm. the Corvette slows down a heck of a lot more than mm. does the Land Rover, right. which goes at a more consistent speed throughout. Okay, so you have this phenomenally rich quantitative data set. Why did you then want to follow it up with qualitative research? Yeah, so, you know, I think we often think about qualitative research as kind of the complementary part to quantitative mm. research, but, you know, I always thought of these as kind of uh, mutual strategies for going up the same road. Mm -hmm. So first, for what I was just saying, I mean, you know, the quantitative data, rich though it is for many things, uh, cannot directly tell us which project did better, right? And for that, I wanted to kind of drive directly to uh, to success, to direct comparative success mm -hmm. across agencies mm -hmm. using qualitative cases. But, mm -hmm. you know, also, frankly, you know, this is kind of big, messy data, uh, and I wanted to understand what really was driving these results and if it really seemed to be about these issues of kind of internal management uh, and control. Um, and, you know, if it was, in what way exactly? So how exactly did the nature of kind of political authorizing environments and how politicians constrained aid agencies then affect how those agencies manage their workers and how those workers were able to kind of achieve project success uh, or not? So in the qualitative research, you have this number of different uh, paired studies that look at how na the impact of navigation strategy is mediated by two things. One, environmental predictability, and secondly, project ver verifiability. Quite. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, can you tell us about those uh, qualitative studies? Yeah. So, you know, basically what I do is I take uh, cases where two organizations managing really differently. Uh, the two organizations are USAID and DFID. Mm. Um, try to accomplish quite similar things in quite similar places in quite similar times. And, you know, what I see over and over again is that uh, the need to be able to report on quantitative measures, the need to be able to kind of uh, tightly control aid to make sure it doesn't go to waste, constrains what the agencies can design and the agents can and do do in their projects. Uh, and this is true both in, in, when dealing in quite unpredictable Liberia, when thinking about kind of, you know, how to uh, improve the, the improve health delivery in Liberia, and when talking about, you know, municipal capacity, uh, financial governance in South African municipalities, um, that basically uh, USAID uh, is oriented towards numbers and drives success towards these numbers, which often is to the detriment of projects, but sometimes is to its benefit. Um, so, you know, when we're talking about South African municipal governance, uh, what happens is that uh, the need to count how many people we've trained and how many trainings occurred mm. means that we have a kind of top-down uh, output control, right? That 
means that people are driven to achieve those numbers, but not actually to change municipalities. Whereas, you know, the kind of more flexible approach of DFID, of putting advisors in the field, uh, helps those advisors, allows those advisors to sometimes steer municipalities towards success, which means also doing different things in different places at different times, rather than following a more standardized approach. Uh, by contrast, in the South African health sector, uh, DFID's attempt to sort of work uh, to navigate by judgment and work through the sort of political system uh, ends up being quite caught up in the era of denialism in which that those projects happen. This is the mid to late 2000s. Um, whereas USAIDS and more broadly the U.S. government's uh, PEPFAR, President's Emergency Program for AIDS Relief, uh, drives numbers, and at least in this, uh, what aid people would call PEPFAR 1 era, mm -hmm. uh, where the key is merely to deliver drugs, uh, to deliver care directly to people, these numbers cut through the noise and help that project uh, save many, many, many lives, mm -hmm. uh, wh whereas there's very little to show for the different project. And so, you know, in both those cases, the measures serve as control. Sometimes that control is for the better, mm -hmm. uh, but often it's for the worse. Uh, and my view, at least, is that in the world of aid, we have a lot more projects that look that look messy, a lot more projects where there's nothing quite so good that we can measure, uh, to your point about verifiability. Mm -hmm. There's no data that we can verify, that we can contract on, that we can say, yes, this is a good, stable number, and it's going to stay good and stable even when I give an agents every incentive uh, to try to maximize that number. It's still going to represent re results well. Uh, and um, yeah, while sometimes that works out well for us, quite often it works out bad. And I think to be clear, when we talk about the, this danger of a myopic focus on numbers, what you're specifically talking about is the danger of a myopic focus and incentive of people achieving predefined targets, specifically inputs and outputs like workshops, attendance. Because numbers in itself might not necessarily be a bad thing if it's tracking results emerging from the field that people themselves identify. Absolutely. So it is about... Uh, it, so in aid agencies is often about inputs and outputs, mm -hmm. uh, but you know more than what it's a number of. To me, it's what the number is used for, yeah. right? So, so you said number of people trained. So uh, about forty years ago, Charles Goodhart uh, coined this term, Goodhart's law, which is this idea that uh, a measure breaks down uh, as a good measure when it's used for control purposes, right? So it's not about the measure itself; it's about what it's used for, and I think. You know, your example of number of people trained is is spot on. Uh, that is to say, if we think about number of people trained as, you know, kind of a counting measure that's an input into our thinking that helps us understand what's going on in a project that we put no pressure upon for control purposes, uh, but we use to learn from, well, I think it might be useful in complement to other things mm -hmm. in learning about the project. Mm -hmm. It's when we incentivize agents to focus yeah, on that absolutely. measure as a control. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, even more than what level is being measured upon, it's what that data is being used for uh, and these kind of conflicting purposes uh, of, of numbers. Um, put another way, we can either use numbers to drive more results or we can use them to report on results. Mm. But sometimes, maybe even often, those two uses are intention. Mm. And the better those numbers are, as a, and the more those numbers are used to report, the less useful they're going to be for learning, understanding, for driving change in the field. Right, so let's consider the alternative. You know, if we're saying navigation by judgment, enhancing local autonomy, 
I think there is a real risk, as you recognise in a book, and particularly in a context of low morale, low wages, this could just lead to pilfering, corruption, ineffective projects, and a colossal waste of taxpayers' money. Yeah. So, you know, the I think that's a great question. Uh, and obviously, if if navigation by judgment is about putting people in charge, it begs the question, who are those people? And what are they going to do when we put them in charge, right? Uh, you know, we wouldn't put uh, an untrained person in charge of driving, you know, the, the train home, mm -hmm. right? Uh, how well trained is that person? Do they want to point that train in the right direction? Mm -hmm. uh, what's going to happen as a result? Um, so first, let me just say that, you know, in the work itself, in the data, uh, increasing levels of navigation by judgment are associated with better results. So in equilibrium, it does seem for these agencies that, uh, or looking across agencies, that uh, giving the operator more slack um, does lead to better outcomes. But, you know, that doesn't tell us about what will happen if we take, you know, kind of more constrained agents and then loosen up the mm -hmm. reins if mm -hmm. we start to let go. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say that, you know, we often think of... Uh, autonomy as a reward. In fact, mm. you know, in the NHS here in the UK, there's a public management literature that suggests it's used as an effective reward for good performance yeah. uh, by, by agents. Mm. Um, the problem with that is, so that's great as far as it goes, right? Mm. Rewarding people with autonomy first makes the point that people like autonomy, mm. right? Mm. Which I think is clear. People like having control over what they do. Mm. Um, but second, I think it can sometimes reverse cause and effect in a way that limits when we think it can be used. So that is to say, you know, if we give people more autonomy, they're going to act differently. They may act not just in worse ways, but also mm -hmm. in better ways. Mm -hmm. And over time, we may change the composition of the agents in the organization, right? So, you know, what attracts any of us to a job? What attracted you to this job? Mm -hmm. I bet you part of why you have your current job, mm -hmm. rather than the myriad other things you could do that, mm -hmm. you know, might have you outside on this lovely sunny day here in London, mm -hmm. uh, is because you like the job design mm -hmm. because you like being able to think and talk and, mm -hmm. you know, go where your uh, mind points you. Mm -hmm. uh, and if we made the job far worse, you would be less likely to hold it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, job design isn't just uh, a function. Optimal job design isn't just a function of the agents you have. It also induces the agent population you have. Mm -hmm. If you make the job more interesting, you're going to get more people interested in. Mm -hmm. And if you start letting people exercise their judgment, they're going to become increasingly better users, users of, of that judgment. So your argument is then that autonomy can enable higher quality performance because people enjoy their jobs more and feel better and feel more motivated. And also it can recruit our higher caliber of stuff. So, and, and this is consistent with a wider body of research. You know, Tendler, Judith Tendler on Northeast Brazil and more recent studies in Ghana and Nigeria find a positive association between civil service autonomy and performance. And it's also consistent with the greatest TV show ever made, which I love that you mentioned <laughs> in the book. So in The Wire, the, the Baltimore city mayor tries to secure re-election by showing that he's tackling crime. He puts pressure on the police to improve the stats, he solve the murders, resolve cases. And that's important. That's not a mental objective to improve the stats. But the problem is that it shapes the authorizing environment. Everyone from the chief of police to the deputy for operations to frontline service women focuses on improving the stats. 
not actually doing what they all know would be more effective in tackling crime. So you never target the king, there's no accountability or repercussions for drug bosses, but we have we still have the problem of the huge demand for drugs, the profitable industry, and competition for territory. So it doesn't reduce overall crime. And this focus on stats we see in The Wire breeds a sense of fatalism and despondency within the police service. And it's frustrating, it's pointless, and they all know it, and it wears them down. So, and I think, and I love that you mentioned it in The Wire, so I really just wanted to talk about The Wire. But, uh, but, uh, and, and I agree, by the way. I couldn't agree more. There are many things on which judgments can differ, but that The Wire is the, is the greatest TV show ever made. But like with Aid, the, the measure, the reason for measuring uh, the, the stats is to appear successful but it can actually undermine effectiveness. Absolutely. And when and when pressure is put on measures for control purposes, those measures change what the agents like Renalty well Renalty didn't pay so much attention, but it changed other 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 yeah. agents um, and organizations. So Okay, so that's very cool. So let's move, but, yes. But what it did do, mm. so McNulty is your mission-driven agent, right? Yeah. So McNulty is going to keep doing the work yeah. even when the assignments point against him. Yeah, but what like, happens? But what happens as a result? He gets reassigned to the boat. Yeah. Because he, yeah. Because he doesn't follow the system, mm. not exactly there, yeah. but because in general mm. he's guided by his own, mm. his own judgment right. rather than by what yeah. the system is asking him to report, yeah. he is placed in a peripheral position where he no longer can affect the change, which mm. is his primary motivator. Mm. And that's the worst thing for McNulty is that he yeah. can't make a difference anymore. Yes. Because when the system rewards those who are best at doing the things that generate the metrics mm. rather than deliver real change mm. to people on the ground, mm. what we get is more people who are better at delivering the metrics mm. in positions of control and fewer people mm. who are interested in delivering change on the ground. Mm. Uh, and, you know, if I have to, if I could say I have nothing but the up, no, utmost respect for those people who work in aid agencies who are mission driven, and there are so, so many of yeah. them who work to make change inside their organizations. Mm. Uh, and it seems to me that the kind of McNulty uh, metrics example is spot on to the yeah. kind of the kind we of we need to make face. aid organisations enable McNulty's to thrive rather than just become yes. despondent drug uh, just despondent Absolutely. alcoholics. Right? Absolutely, maybe without the drinking on the job <laughs> that McNulty engages on. <laughs> Even so, McNulty, maybe, maybe not, but yes, that direction of the mission-driven Asian. Okay, okay. So, thinking of McNulty, you say we can be outcome-driven without being driven by measured outcomes. How do we do that? Yeah. So, uh, we rethink when measures are serving our purpose and when they aren't, right? Mm. When uh, is the push for results that are measurable mm. actually generating results? Mm. And when are we getting outcomes mm. but without... Uh, when are we not getting outcomes because of the push for performance? So, you know, Charles Kenny in a recent book, which has a brilliant title in my view, uh, talks about what he calls results, not receipts, yeah. right? And this isn't about, you know, sort of receipts for purchases and reporting in that way. But in a sense, you know, those kinds of output metrics are yeah. a sort of receipt on what the project has done. Mm. And, you know, the question is, how else do we know if outcomes have happened, yeah. right? Well, luckily, we can trust much more than merely kind of the audit trail of what the you know auditor sitting I don't know somewhere in Whitehall can mm, see mm, of what DFID mm, has done mm. of what the parliamentary committee staffer can see so first we can see what other people in the field see mm. right second we can see 
what local communities see and, and talk about what point, those outcomes are. When you talk about other agents in the field, is this your point about horizontal accountability or like peer learning between age, between different... Absolutely, yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, we can think about... So the, the notion isn't that... Um, so I talk about this kind of the importance of what we can see on the ground, mm. but that we can't codify and transmit up the, mm. up the sort of hierarchy, mm. what we can't put a number on mm. and make visible to the auditor, mm. right? Mm. Uh, that, that stuff is not just visible to the person who drives the project. It's also visible to anyone who's there, right? Mm. So, you know, there are multiple reasons uh, for those of us in, in relationships or who have spouses, there are multiple reasons your spouse uh, ends up agreeing with you on on most things. One is because they're wonderful and supportive people. Mm. The other is because they see the same information you do, right? Mm. And taking that information bit, right, uh, separately, you know, when we think about uh, who else can know whether the project made the best judgment, mm. right, whether that judgment call was well-intentioned, what we learned from mm, it, mm. even, you know, beyond being well-intentioned, mm, whether it was mm, effective, mm, uh, who can estimate what might have happened otherwise if mm, that call hadn't mm. been made, uh, it's other people who are in the same context. Mm. And so, you know, the uh, one possibility is to think more about how uh, we allow evaluation to incorporate more of those judgments. And those judgments can come from people outside the organization. It doesn't have to be sort of diffid staff telling each other, uh, that they've done a great job. Mm. Uh, it can also be other professionals in context mm. who can help understand what happened and what, what, what could have happened as a result. Or it could even be people from other aid agencies in the same country. Absolutely. Like you could have some horizontal peer learning between the French and the German, for example. Exactly. Uh, development agencies. And, and in that sense, you know, for those who are familiar, the OECD Development Assistance Committee, or DAC, has a series of peer reviews that mm. think about sort of uh, management practices at the, at the organizational level, mm. at the management level, mm. right? We could imagine a similar kind of peer system mm. in the aid agency. And there would necessarily be concerns about sort of collusion and concerns about sort of information quality. But people from outside the system, not merely peer organizations, could be involved as well. And, you know, there is also uh, an active conversation, including, uh, if I'm not wrong on this podcast, about... Uh, how we incorporate beneficiary voices and information, mm. uh, this could be a place for that as well. Mm. You know, let's think about what the outcomes are, which means more than what we can narrowly see and count. Mm. Uh, we uh, can be outcome-driven without being driven by measured outcomes. Mm. Right? But I just want to understand how far along the spectrum you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, which, which spectrum now is really the next, the next question. So, yeah. so, so would A be more effectively spent if country programs... Because there's, there's one thing to say that we shouldn't use preconceived measures, okay, to evaluate interventions, but should there not be any measures at all, or is it how those measures are decided upon? So my view is the latter, that it's mm. how those measures are decided right. upon, and indeed, I think there's some projects, and I argue in the book there's some projects, where, in fact, we want more... Yeah. Or, or different, yeah. but, you know, outcome-driven, mm, mm, right? Mm. But we, we want to control perhaps even more tightly mm, mm. Uh, with measures and incentivize people mm, on success. Mm, mm. Um, you know, uh, I would say, though, that I think we haven't seen a lot of work there. So to the extent that I'm empirically driven and mm. empirically oriented, mm. uh, I think we need to do more to find out exactly where the optimal point is. Um, and the beginning of that is walking in that direction and then seeing how far 
how far that carries us. And I think there was a nice distinction made earlier today when we were both at CGT, the distinction between targets and results. Yes, that's right. So, uh, you know, it's not about meeting the target, it's about actually generating the development result. Uh, and I should say, you know, I think the move between results and targets is often incredibly well-meaning, right? So somebody from outside, you know, uh, in mm. authorizing mm. a member of parliament or member of the public or advocacy group uh, says we want more of something that's genuinely good. Yeah. And because of that, we're going to set a target to help the agency mm. get mm. there, to, to induce the agency to mm. get there. Uh, but the problem is that the target ends up... Uh, Distorting what people do, yeah, yeah and distorting what people incentives. do, and yeah. So what what we might say then is it's important for aid agencies to rigorously assess what they're doing, to generate results, to show what they're doing is working, and learn from it, but not necessarily follow a template. That's right, and ha what rigor looks like uh, is more than merely counting things, yeah. right? And indeed, in many cases, more rigor. Uh, doesn't mean abandoning measures, and it certainly doesn't mean abandoning accountability, mm. um, but it means abandoning the current sort of regime, mm. uh, the current reporting regime under which these agencies labor. And what I also love about your book is that it's not unique to aid. You highlight the similar things are going on in the private sector. So when private firms are more autonomous, they were better able to, in the, in the OECD, they were better able to weather the Great Recession if they were decentralized and autonomous. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Thank you for, for picking up on that. Yeah, so uh, Philippe Aguillon uh, and with some co-authors, uh, a number of illustrious co-authors, mm. uh, has this study that basically uses the same model I do in this book, mm. which is his, mm. which is Nobel laureate Jean Tirole and Philippe Aguillon's work on control, mm. uh, to think about uh, who does better uh, amongst w what helps private sector firms survive mm. this unpredictable shock, mm. right? So we get this unpredictability, mm. you know, what kind of management practices help you weather the storm? And mm. it turns out you're better at weathering the storm mm. uh, if the people with their hands on the wheel are those who are actually in the water yeah. rather than those on the distant shore. Mm, that's very cool. But okay, let's get real. Because navigation <laughs> by judgment is super risky. And the danger of ceding control to field agents will inevitably lead to some bad behavior. Right? I think we can Absolutely. accept that. Absolutely. And, that, and that's partly why... USAID is so tightly controlled. I remember when I was in Zambia speaking to people in USAID, I'd be saying, and you know, they know that what they're doing can generate perverse incentives and it, they know that there can be suboptimal results through this tight control mechanism. But they think that's less bad than the worst case scenario a bit of a big media shitstorm. So can I ask out who's the they? The, the people uh, in USAID. So that is to say... When you say the they know it could be better, right? Mm. Do you have in mind? I know this isn't how mm. how four questions yeah, works, yeah, but if I could no, if yeah, I could flip the it. questions here, go for so, it. It's uh, you know, so I think I think we tend to they. I'm gonna seize my control. That's very kind of you. <laughs> That's very kind of you. Now hold on to your hold on to your seats, folks. We have a poor, uneducated driver steering four questions. Things will go off the rails soon. Please do call your family members and then let them know you might be coming home late. So, uh, the, uh, you know, I think, you know, when you talk about they, do you have in mind 
uh, sort of management? Do you have people in the field who are managing programs? Who are your they when you talk about USAID workers in your so, experience? So uh, I'm referring to people in USAID who would be worried by, for example, misappropriation of funds, hitting the headlines, and then people in America clubbing their funds because they were very worried about that negative publicity. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, that sounds like the job not of the person running the program directly, right? But of folks, you know, usually at headquarters, yeah. thinking very reasonably mm. about not just their own careers, but also the agency's legitimacy, right? Yeah. There's not going to be a lot more aid if there's no aid agency mm. to, to give out that aid. Um, you know, and what I would say is that, uh, first, just to say I couldn't agree with you more. And frankly, if we trust people's judgment, uh, we will sometimes get it wrong. Mm. And we should work hard to minimize how often we get it wrong. Mm. We should work hard to adjust things for the better when we understand what the kinds of errors people are mm. making are. We should take small risks and learn about the judgment of our agents and then cede more control mm. uh, rather than take big risks, which also, by the way, comes straight from sort of leadership, scholarship in, uh, in, uh, in, in the private sector. Um, but yes, we will sometimes, it is risky, and not only is it risky, we will realize those risks. Yeah. Some of those risks will happen. So uh, how do we change what happens, right? So uh, if you're sitting inside an aid agency listening to this and you're thinking, okay, great, so this is great news. We can do something that will definitely blow up mm -hmm. uh, and make things worse for my agency. Yeah. I am sold. <laughs> Uh, let me say that I, I don't think, I hope to be able to say a bit more than that uh, to, your, to your condition, which is, so first, uh, I think we can educate people um, and authorizers. Part of the reason I push back on they is because I think uh, we often talk about politicians or Congress as a kind of they inappropriately. Um, I think lots of individuals, uh, including individuals who are involved in the senior management of the organizations and individuals who are involved in parliaments and executive boards and things like that uh, really genuinely want aid to do better, right? They want more results and they should want more results, right? To go back to a world where we don't think at all about what our money does is not a direction of travel. Uh, it's not a train worth getting on, right? Uh, but I think often people don't fully conceive, don't fully hear, don't fully understand the distortions that are happening further down the chain, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, if you talk to a U.S. congressman who thinks the only purpose of executing aid, the only purpose of doing aid mm -hmm. is to win hearts and minds. So I might disagree with that view. Uh, but for aid to happen, for that heart and mind to be won, mm -hmm. the project has to succeed, yeah. right? So conditional on the project existing, if we put this project into existence, uh, Everyone, almost everyone, is oriented towards making it actually drive real results, making it generate real outcomes. And I think we can say things like, well, sometimes our management systems are actually pointing us in the wrong direction and so, change those management systems. So I think systems. your point is, from Congress to the field, we are all, many of us, are McNulty's. And it's just a question of how collectively can we make our own organizations more conducive to enabling us to thrive. Absolutely. And, you know, I would say that in terms of how we do that, how we make our organizations more conducive, mm -hmm. well... One, we think about risk on kind of a portfolio basis mm -hmm. rather than a project basis, mm -hmm. right? How are we doing in a sector? Mm -hmm. We increase timelines, right? We increase reporting timelines in a way that 
for those projects which need to be navigated by judgment. Mm -hmm. We give people more ability to kind of uh, steer and learn mm -hmm. and educate their judgment and learn again. Maybe there are implications for human resources here. Mm -hmm. uh, people need to learn about context rather than sort of fly in, fly out yeah, and management. Sure. And, you know, that's more than merely creating a country office, right? Mm -hmm. If I decentralize my office but still ask it to report back mm -hmm. on all the same mm -hmm. things, uh, I may have changed, uh, you know, the zip code people live in. I've changed the postal code but I haven't necessarily changed uh, who's making decisions yeah, right. in the organization. Uh, and, you know, let's work together. Let's engage authorizers in thinking about how to try new management practice. We, we talk about trying new things in aid all the time. We try new things all the time, but usually we mean it in kind of a technical, mm -hmm. here's what's going to be part of the program mm -hmm. sense. And I guess I want to add our own management practices mm -hmm. add looking into the mirror mm -hmm. uh, and thinking about ourselves to the range of things that we can think about altering, the range of levers that we can think about adjusting. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that if we do that, uh, we can work to minimize or mitigate the risk to our agencies of getting things wrong, which we will do, mm -hmm. right? Uh, by helping all parties understand we're on a process, we're engaged in a, in a search, in a common search mm. for results. Mm. And frankly, I imagine that developing more trusting relationships across these sort of levels mm. uh, from, you know, the organization senior management to authorizers, mm. uh, from the organization's management to its field staff mm. uh, may well have spillover benefits for uh, lots of other parts of uh, yeah, aid delivery absolutely. as well. So I, now I have my final question. Please. Which is perhaps slightly more than the four questions, Miss um, <laughs> Noma. Yes. Um, <laughs> yes, I've noticed. I'm not. I don't like output statistics, but I had noticed we had gone. We had gone before beyond four, but that's great. It's really wonderful. To okay. So, how do aid agencies respond to these findings? Yeah, I'll be honest. That nothing. To me, the most touching reaction anyone mm. has to my work uh, is something that actually. Uh, Matt Andrews and Michael Wilcox separately mentioned to me when I was a student uh, at, at the Kennedy School, Harvard Kennedy School, um, which is where I got my PhD, uh, which is when somebody comes up to me after a talk and says, you know, thank you. You've described my reality. You've described my world. I've never heard somebody, you know, I've gone to a lot of these seminars and you know, I've heard a lot of academics come in but this is this is my world this is what I live and I um, and I I am fortunate enough to hear that from time to time uh, I also hear a lot of yes you know things have been going in the wrong direction on this for some time mm. and we would love to turn this around i got into this industry you know not not talking about me dan honig but yeah. i the person the mcnulty know, the, the mcnulty right you know i got into this industry because i cared you know i got my degree mm. and i could have done something else but i didn't yeah, yeah. i did this mm. and you know i feel every day like i fight against this system mm. when i really want to drive results and mm. you know Frankly, I think something that we all know is that red tape sometimes gets in the way, mm. right? Sometimes process rules mm. are incredibly helpful mm. uh, in helping regulate our society, mm. right? Uh, it's great that we have speed limits. Mm. I'm not, I don't think we shouldn't, right? Mm. But sometimes the red tape of our own organizations does indeed uh, keep us from getting 
better performance. I think aid agencies feel this. And what's more, I think when I have the opportunity, uh, or the privilege to speak to people who run these organizations or political authorizers or people on executive boards, I find that many of them feel this way too. Mm -hmm. You know, even in an organization where staff talk about their board or their uh, authorizers mm -hmm. as this kind of scary thing whose shadow, you know, Voldemort, whose shadow, you know, right. must the, the name that cannot be said, yeah. right? It's still the case that when you go and talk to people, there are people, and indeed some of those authorizers come up and yeah, say, yeah, this is something that really we, we need to think more about, that we've been thinking about, that, that describes the world we're in, but we're stuck in this machine and we haven't thought, we haven't stepped back and really thought about sort of how our machine works. And I think that's the brilliant contribution of your book that by particularly not just by people reading it by themselves but by having these public discussions so that people realize widespread frustration with the system to yeah. use a crude term and to realize that their colleagues would also like it to be different and to realize that shared support and that could generate collective momentum for a slightly different way of navigating by judgment as uh you know the wise work of somebody who works in this office uh Alice Evans would point us towards, if we can get folks pointed towards uh, a notion of a collective reality that they want to see uh, come into existence, they'll be more able to make that reality together. And that's not just true for social movements that are public. It's also true for movements that are movements of professionals. To change the way the agencies that, uh, that control the work that they feel dedicated to doing allow them to do that work. Uh, and I think, uh, I, ha I am hopeful. I am hopeful that, you know, we will make uh, an aid management system, a system of managing inside aid organizations that's worthy of the, uh, the quality and integrity of the people who work inside the system. Uh, and that we'll all be able to um, contribute in the, way, uh, in the way we hope uh, to, to our kind of shared goal of making the world a better place. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dan. And do read his book, uh, Navigating by Judgment. Thank you very much. Thank you.